God wrote a book, revealed his truth in this book. God wrote a book. That is the best news you've heard all day. God revealed his truth to us right here. Look at how ridiculously privileged we all are. Of all the eras in human history into which you could have been born, you were born into this one in which the canon, meaning the collection of books that makes up the Bible, is complete. God revealed himself through the course of progressive revelation across a story, whereby inspiring his word, establishing the Old Testament law, which was the the pillar for New Testament grace, and then upon the ceiling at the end of the book of Revelation, the canon of scripture is complete, and then you were born. It is linear, it is narrative, it is an epic, it is a story, and it's beautiful, and you are swept up into it today. God wrote a book. Thank you, God, for your perfect word. What's also remarkable is that he himself embodies this text. John opens up describing Jesus as the word himself, the logos, that foundation upon which all of Greek philosophy was striving to be built. Socrates sought after the Logos, but never found it, never truly knew what it was. As a result, Alexander the Great, his pupil, suffered from the same fracture in his worldview, not knowing where the Logos was, not knowing where the foundation was, not knowing who the Word was. And then John writes the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. The word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus himself is the logos, the word, the presupposition upon which all truth is built. John was writing directly to the heart of the Hellenist, the Greek, the student of Socrates in the lands conquered by Alexander the Great. He pointed to Jesus as the word, the logos, the presupposition. It's Jesus. God wrote a book. This is phenomenal news. Other worldviews vary wildly on this. Islam, for example, supposes that Muhammad received the full revelation of Allah instantaneously, and it was so heavy, it was of such great weight that it crushed the camel he was sitting upon. Boom! All knowledge that Allah had, he supposedly put upon his prophet Muhammad. But not the Bible. Not the Bible. It wasn't just one man whose word could be contested. It was multiple authors spanning miles, spanning centuries, and all of them work in such beautiful cooperation because all of them are... The story of God being written, God wrote a book revealing to us exactly what we needed when we needed it at the time that we needed it. It's phenomenal. It's phenomenal. This is how God has revealed himself to us. Perfectly intelligible form. You could could debate apologetics and you could win half the argument but lose the whole point of the engagement if you stop short of the gospel itself. You would say, nothing comes from nothing. You could use the Kalam cosmological argument, basically a Muslim academic name put onto Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was made by the one who was unseen. Nothing comes from nothing. Universes don't just explode into existence out of nothingness. Ex nihilo, nihilo feet. Out of nothing comes nothing, yet here we are. 
You can make the argument that the metaphysical must exist, and you would be absolutely right because the Kalam cosmological argument is undefeated in debate. It's true. Nothing, nothing comes from nothing. Universes don't create themselves, yet here we are. Here's the problem with that. Devil worshipers believe the same thing. It's not a complete argument. You could convince someone of the Kalam. You could convince someone of the necessity for a metaphysical initiator. They would still go to hell when they die because they're far from God in their sin. Rather, if all of your apologetics does one thing, if it proves the veracity of scripture, then not only do you automatically prove all of those preconditions, like where matter came from, where life came from, where morality came from, where it's all going, but you automatically disprove other worldviews as well. This is the only worldview, this is the only text, this is the only book in the universe that describes the preconditions necessary for intelligibility. It shows us how we can even know things, all right? I promise to tone down the academics in about 37 seconds, but first I got another big word to teach you, okay? Are you ready? Brace yourselves, okay? I want you to study a concept because it shows how, how utterly superior the Christian worldview is to every other worldview. And it shows us where we came from, where we're going, how we're able to even know things at all. It was a concept put in motion by a man named Cornelius Van Til, V-A-N-T-I-L. And this work is called Revelational Epistemology. Revelational as in God has revealed himself. Epistemology is in the study of how we know things. We know that two plus two equals four, but how do we actually know that? How is it possible to know anything? Well, according to the Christian worldview, it's because of God's intent, right? So say revelational epistemology. Was anybody injured just then? All right? It's a deep, heavy concept, but it's a beautiful proof of God. God wrote a book. He revealed himself, giving us everything that we need to know. Now we know what we need to know, and we know how we're able to know things. Revelational epistemology. The mystics can't even come close to this. The skeptics all admit that they're wrong at the onset in this debate. Nobody comes close. There's no other text in the history of the world that is so beautifully and preciously preserved as this. It is a monument to historicity. There is no other text in the world wherein monks during the dark ages when transcribing it would come upon the word, the name, Yahweh, and before writing it, get a new utensil, become ceremonially clean, come back to their work, write the name Yahweh, discard that utensil, become ceremonially clean again, and come back to their work. Nobody did that with the work of Homer, for example. Okay? Nobody did that with the Iliad. Nobody did that with any other ancient writing. Gilgamesh did not get near that kind of treatment. And as a result, literacy itself was preserved through the Dark Ages. That is the kind of painstaking care with which this text has been preserved generation upon generation. And every modern discovery we make of ancient manuscripts 100% aligns with the other collections of manuscripts we have. It is phenomenal. There was a shepherd boy throwing rocks into a cave near the Dead Sea. He heard the sound of clay breaking went inside and found some things that he thought might make cool shoes. He was standing in line at a store and a biblical scholar was standing in line behind him and said, why is the prophet Isaiah on your feet? He said, well, come, find, come, come, come look at this cave that I found. Near the Dead Sea were ancient manuscripts 
discovered in the 1940s. As recently as the 1940s, ancient manuscripts have been discovered, and their consistency with all of our other collections of manuscripts are incredible. It is amazing. There's no other text like it. When I hear this really common argument that the Bible is a translation of a translation of a translation of a translation, I have to scoff at the colossal glittering ignorance of that. Like every modern day pastor with a standard degree of the MDiv is trained in Hebrew and Greek. We can read Hebrew and Greek. So we can read the ancient collections of manuscripts and then we translate it once into our language. It's not a translation of a translation of a translation. It is a translation. And our modern English translations do a phenomenal job of preserving this ancient text. God wrote a book. And by it we may know where we came from, where we're going, how we're even able to know things at all. There is no other text that stands the test of history this way. Yeah, but Jesse, what about some groups of manuscripts that don't line up with others? What about some passages and verses here and there that are included in some manuscripts but not all of them? Well, your modern translations do a phenomenal job with this as well. When there is a verse or a passage that's included in a minority of the number of manuscripts, it's still included, but it's given in italics with an asterisk among brackets or some other treatment. You probably never considered this before. Would you take a moment to feel some sympathy for Bible translators? Because that is horrifying work. The very first day that I got to Lifeway, I saw this lady get out of her car and she went around and checked every handle on her car twice before walking inside. I was like, I need to meet this person. She was the one who headed the team for the Hebrew grammar. She was the world leading expert in Hebrew grammar and she was on the team that was producing the Christian Standard Bible, the new translation that came out a couple of years ago, the CSB. I was like, I know she's very good at her job because she's very good at walking away from her car. She's very thorough. So you can imagine how she approached the grammar of Genesis 1-1. <laughs> you feel the weight of that? In the end of Revelation, there comes this disclaimer that says anybody who takes words out of this or adds words to this is gonna suffer the plagues described in it. So what are you to do, Bible translator, when you have this verse, this fragment that's only in some manuscripts and not others? If you include it and it's not inspired, you just added words to God's word. If you excise it and it was inspired, you just took words out of God's word. So would you hug a Bible translator <laughs> if you ever get to meet one? I took them out to lunch regularly when I got the chance to because I just felt bad for them. <laughs> it is difficult work. So this is, that, that's, the re, that's how we account for discrepancies among ancient manuscripts. You include it, but you give it a certain treatment that, that offers the disclaimer, this may or may not have been inspired. The work of translation is a difficult one. Yeah, but Jesse, what about this translation, the first Bible translation ever, the Septuagint, put together by 72 rabbis translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. That was like the first Bible translation and it existed in the days of Jesus. How do we know that that was accurate? How do we know that that was really true? How do we know that that's useful? And my conviction, I believe Jesus, when speaking and quoting the Old Testament in Greek, quoted verbatim the Septuagint. Jesus' use of the Septuagint authorizes it. So as a result, I can fully endorse translations that use the Septuagint, and obviously as well, others that use the original Hebrew, of course. Our modern English translations are really quite amazing. I fully endorse them. 
fully endorse them, fully endorse the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, the Christian Standard Bible, the English Standard Version. All right, these are remarkable works. Know when a paraphrase is a paraphrase and see it for exactly what it is, but appreciate the painstaking work that goes into Bible translation. Yeah, but Pastor Jesse, what about some translations that are totally just iterations of the personal convictions of the translator, right? The thought-for-thought approach to translation carries inherent risks, okay? Uh, Not to sound like a nerd too late. um. (laughs) I learned more about this when I went into the Christian publishing industry. HarperCollins, HarperCollins is a secular publishing company that owns the translation produced by the International Bible Society um, dispersed through Zondervan. And as a result, it's a secular company that earns royalties every time a Bible is published. And the, the rubric that they used to make this translation was thought for thought. This thought in Hebrew is this thought in English. This thought in Greek is this thought in English. And the result is a very fluent, very readable translation. But what about the personal convictions of the translators? If they think of it a certain way, isn't that thought pattern gonna be reflected? And aren't they somewhat staining the original intent? We're not really hearing the original text, we're hearing that person's translation of it, that person's interpretation of it, which is something slightly different. The result was some shakiness around the release of the new version of their translation, the NIV that came out in 2011. In 84, the the 84 NIV translation was dominating the market. Everybody used it. Highlands Community Church used it. And then in 2011, they they produced this brand new translation and they removed the old ones from shelves. The 84s all just disappeared like one of the kids in the Cosby family between seasons, like she never existed. And now the 2011 came out and there were these rumors that it used like gender neutral pronouns to describe God. And everybody was really shaken up by that. I read the 2011 NIV. I didn't see any of that in it. But perception is reality. The fact that it was perceived as slightly liberal was enough to shake everybody's faith in it. And the market share decrease of the NIV in 2011 is inversely proportional to the market share increase in the English Standard Version. What does that tell you? Churches just switched. NIV to ESV. Now that was different because the ESV actually drew from a different set of manuscripts. The two basic schools of manuscripts are the Nestle and the Textus Recepticus. All right, both of them I believe are divinely inspired and useful for Bible translation. But also the ESV varied from the NIV in this. It was not a thought for thought translation, it was a word for word translation. So it's not quite a perfect substitute. I know that word for word sounds really rigorous and trustworthy. All right, how many of you speak multiple languages? In your head right now, take any poem ever and translate it word for word into another language. Do you see what I'm talking about, right? Word for word is not always the best mode of translation, right? Uh, This is is manifest oftentimes in uh, pictures of menus at restaurants in different countries where they would use software to translate word for word and the results are hilarious. Have you guys seen this? All right, word for word is not actually always the optimum translation rubric. So the ESV, as much as we love it, and we've been teaching it here for years at Highlands Community Church, it has some clunky moments. It has some clunky renderings of English text when the original Hebrew is not clunky at all. It has some clunky renderings of Greek when the original Greek's not clunky at all. So it's not quite perfect, but it is trustworthy, it is accurate, it is safe. 
Some translations use a thought-for-thought rubric, and then you're just trusting the translator. Some use a word-for-word rubric, and the result can be a little clunky sometimes. Right? But then there are other translation rubrics that use optimum equivalence, sometimes thought-for-thought, sometimes word-for-word. In all of these, though, in all of these, I'm blessed to see the word of God is bigger than paper and ink, is bigger even than the translation process. This is a spiritual matter. It is God who wrote this book. And no translator, no matter how befuddled, can interfere with that. I'll give you an example. I was on a mission trip in Brazil. We were showing the Jesus film against a building in the town square. People had gathered and almost came to the point where you could really hear the gospel truly in the movie. And about that time, a group of men and some dogs began to show up and began to shout in these bizarre guttural sounds, trying to drown out the sound from the speakers of the, of the, of the Jesus film. I was a young youth pastor. I didn't know exactly. I was in the throes of this conversation. I had classmates who had strong convictions, had shaken my trust in my NIV 84 that somebody gave me when I was a little boy in the Adventure Bible. Do you guys remember those? Right? And I, I had my Adventure Bible. I always read it. I knew Jesus. I loved Jesus. I didn't worship some other deity. Like I knew that it was the word of God, not some other God. But they had shaken my trust in it. And I was, I was feeling insecure. I was like, what if I'd used the wrong translation? Like my whole ministry is just moot because I chose the wrong translation of the Bible. And it uses these words instead of these words. And as these demon-possessed men and dogs began trying to shout out the gospel. I just opened up my NIV 84 and I began to just read it. Instantly, they were silenced and the dogs scattered. I saw the word of God at work. Even if it was slightly imperfect in its translation rubric, I saw God use it. The demons would shudder and flee at the proclamation of the word of God. It is God who wrote this book, not Harper Collins. This is the word of God, and so you can fully trust your English translation. Every one of them is inspired by God, and they do a remarkable job, a remarkably accurate job of rendering the original text. The Bible is unlike any other book. I'll show you what is likely the room where this book we're going to read today was written. Okay, Take a look at the original geographic context. This is in the heart of Rome. Mamertine prison, in which Paul, in the room beneath this upper room, wrote a letter to his protege, Timothy. It was the last book of the Bible he would ever write. Now, how many of you guys are planning on, say, starting a cult next week? It's on your calendar, start cult, charge membership fees. All right, anybody starting a cult? Andrew? Okay, you guys? Here's a tip, here's a pointer, okay? When you start your cult and when you write your sacred text, don't name actual city streets and people, okay? Make up random places because they'll fact check you. They'll go back and they'll try to find that person on that street in that country. And when they find out that you just made it up, it doesn't really exist, they'll know that your sacred text is bunk and there goes your business model, okay? The Bible sets itself up over and over and over again to be disproven by a simple archaeological dig. But over and over and over again, with a perfect spotless record, the Bible proves to be ahead of our knowledge of archaeology. It has never been disproven by archaeology, but has only been proven by archaeology. It names specific streets which still exist to this day and can be observed on Google Maps for crying out loud. The Bible is the word of God. God wrote a book. This is phenomenal and carries with it tremendous implications. 
Would you read with me 2 Timothy chapter 3? Begin on page 996. And the Bible's in the seats with you. 2 Timothy chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will be there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Oh, that's frightening. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent equipped for every good work. God wrote a book. Now, these opening verses, as you go through them, gives this rapid-fire series of descriptors. And what's remarkable to me is that this could have been published in the Washington Post as cultural commentary yesterday on King County. It is remarkable. Like It, it requires no interpretive work on my part, just recitation, because it lines up and it describes our culture so immaculately. I mean, this is thousands of years old, but it reads like a blog post, just describing culture. The word of God is living and active. Cultures are doing what cultures have been doing for millennia, cyclically defying God and either experiencing revival and mass repentance or the wrath of God for their sin. Either way, the cycle continues as people would forsake the truth of God for a lie and thinking themselves wise become fools and then God will hand them over to their own devices. God wrote a book. May we hold steadfastly to it. Listen to these descriptors and tell me if this doesn't sound like culture today. Look, look at how alive the Bible is for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant. Okay, those seem like synonyms in English. What's the deal? The ESV did a pretty good job, but it's difficult because the original Greek word is aladzon, and it comes with a connotation of an imposter. So where the ESV says proud and then arrogant, that first word proud is aladzon in the Greek. It's kind of like the music man who showed up in town pretending to be really qualified, but secretly had no idea what he was doing, right? 
proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. That one's timeless, isn't it? <laughs> so that's a celebrated tradition. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control. Self-control seems to be really unfashionable these days. Brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Do you see what I mean? Does, that look, does it sound like the, the, the first lines of an article that could have been published yesterday? It's remarkable. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. Now that makes our translation work very easy. We're able to relate and apply this text very easily because Ephesus is a lot like modern American culture, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. This one frightens me. When I was the brand manager for Explore the Bible, I was approached by the management for the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., it is uh, funded by an amazing family, the same family that started Hobby Lobby. Great family of God, beautiful, God-loving people. They love the Lord with all their heart and soul and mind and strength, and they wanted us to advertise Museum of the Bible and explore the Bible. And so I had the chance to go out and scope it out, me and other people from Lifeway. And what I found was positively the most amazing museum that has ever been made. Like, I've never seen art become manifest so exquisitely as I have at this place. It was striking. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. The budget must have been through the roof for this thing. I mean, like the lobby itself, it's like four stories tall with, like, with an LED ceiling that's constantly evolving and changing. I mean, it's just strikingly beautiful. I stood there with tears in my eyes looking at all of the collections of manuscripts and knowing the people who risked their very lives to preserve those. Oh, it was amazing, it was amazing, but there was one thing that was missing and it's the most important thing of all, the gospel is as a, at this time nowhere to be found in the Museum of the Bible. I shared this concern with the management and there are plans to introduce another exhibit that will share the gospel. But in the meantime, I fear that the Museum of the Bible may be the most dangerous thing ever built because it, lead, it can lead you to misunderstand the Bible, to make you think you know everything there is to know about the Bible, but not the gospel, which is the point of it all. In the lobby is paperwork describing how this museum sets out to articulate the impact that the Bible merely as a book has had on culture. So they have set out to describe and tell the story of a book that they find remarkable. And the result ought to be, the result should be, now, in light of all of this, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and so be saved from the consequences for your sins. That should be the takeaway, but instead the takeaway is a golf clap for an impactful book that has really done a number on culture. And that's what terrifies me. I've seen other creation museums that have far lesser budgets, but at least they have the gospel included. So pray that another exhibit is added on to the Museum of the Bible because people in Washington, D.C., of all places, line up around the block to get into this place. Absolutely a phenomenal thing, but I wonder, does it have the appearance of godliness but deny the power of the Bible? God, help us if we have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. All right, the words, God wrote a book permutated differently might strike you differently. May you not know just enough of this to stand condemned and without excuse before God. 
God wrote a book. So don't mess with it, right? It was God who wrote this book. And we'll answer to him. And all the knowledge that you've amassed of scripture but not applied to your heart will rise up to condemn you in judgment before your creator king if you don't confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. May you not be a walking encyclopedia with Bible memorization skills but no repentance in your life from sin. No presence of the spirit of God within you. No good works flowing from you as the scripture equips you for exactly that. Now he goes on to name Janice and John Brace, describing these people who would victimize those who were in a weak state and capitalize on them. And the names Janice and John Brace appear in verse eight, but that's the only time they appear in the Protestant Bible. Okay. Janice and John Brace are also named in some apocryphal texts. Okay, Jesse, you gotta stop with the big words this sermon. It's driving me crazy. All right, stick with me. The apocrypha is a collection of books that is kicked out of the canon of scripture. From May to August of 325 in Constantinople, we collected and amassed all of the ancient manuscripts. You'd have some like the Gospel of John with hundreds of ancient copies found all over the Mediterranean, all of them 100% consistent with each other. And then you have this one letter that was found thousands of miles from where it's claimed author ever lived, written hundreds of years after that author died. And we have one copy of it. One of these manuscripts is not like the others. That's my impression of the Council of Nicaea. <laughs> Some of these texts were just found to be outright fraudulent. They were spurious in their intent and dubious in their authorship, and so they were excised from the canon. Not always the case. Some of these apocryphal texts are quite true. For example, First and Second Maccabees. It's true. These are true books. Now, they're not in the Protestant Bible. Why? Because they're not pertinent to the gospel. True historical books, great, great background tools. Totally tells the stories of where the Hasmonean dynasty led to the offices of Pharisee and Sadducee. You can get more of the tension in that relationship. You can understand a little bit better after reading Maccabees. I'll give you some examples of some of these other books. Like if you came from the Catholic church and you bought a new Bible and it feels lighter than the one you had before, <laughs> it's because there are certain books in the Catholic Bible that are, we, are considered apocryphal. Right? The apocryphal books in the Catholic Bible are Tobit and Judith. They appear after Ezra. First and second Maccabees come after Esther. Wisdom and Ecclesiasticus comes after Song of Songs. I read Ecclesiasticus. It says that fathers should not laugh or play with their children. So I know it's not inspired because I am a horrible sinner if that's the case. Baruch is included after Lamentations. Right? These were found to be unnecessary and not worthy of the canon of Scripture. So they were ex excised from it. God wrote a book and mass accountability through generations of shared eyes upon the process have led to the most exquisitely historically preserved book ever. It's an amazing, amazing thing. So Janus and Jambres are named in one of these apocryphal texts. He's named by Origen, who is considered a church father. Origen, like his mentor, Clement of Alexandria, came from Alexandria. There were two Alexandrias. This was the big one in Egypt with the giant library that burned down, okay? That school of theology was known to be very liberal. So Origen is known as kind of like the crazy uncle at family events that you, you love and you don't quite take everything he says 100% seriously. We love you, Uncle Origen, but no. <laughs> Right? Origen is one who points to Janice and Jambres as likely 
the two magicians in the office of the Pharaoh who stood toe-to-toe with Moses. Okay, do you guys remember the Prince of Egypt cartoon, Mariah Carey, right? When Moses is there in front of Pharaoh and he throws his staff down, it becomes a snake, and the other two magicians like throw their staffs down, they become snakes, and they duke it out, okay? Those two magicians were likely Janus and Jambres. We don't know that for 100% certainty because they're named in an apocryphal text, but it does help illuminate what Paul's describing here. They are pagan teachers who were proven wrong, publicly, just proven wrong. Janus and John Brace, like, look, their failure was evident to all, plain to all, according to verse nine. These are like false teachers of this age. Where, indeed, are the philosophers of Paul's age? The ashes of their empires have long since scattered. What were they teaching? We don't know because they're all dead and their teachings are gone too, but Christianity remains. God wrote a book. The mystics don't even claim to have knowledge of the truth. Skeptics are, are admittedly ignorant from the onset of the discussion. No other worldview accounts for the truth this way. Only Christianity, only the Bible itself, through revelational epistemology shows us everything we need to know and even how it's possible for us to know things. Let Janus and Jambres work their tricks. They're gonna be exposed for the frauds that they are. You, however, remain faithful to the word of God. You see that in verse 10? You, however... I consider this the blessed contrarian tone. It appears in verses 10 and 14, describing the utter debauchery and foolishness of a culture that is rampantly running from God. But as for you, Timothy, let the world be crazy and debaucherous, but as for you, but you, however, that first contrarian blessed tone appears in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. I love that. What you've seen in me, you do likewise. It goes like this, do what I do. This is a picture of discipleship between Paul and Timothy. Now he knew well the persecutions at Lystra named in verse 11 because Timothy was from Lystra. For more reading on the sufferings that he's referring to at at Antioch and Iconium, see Acts chapters 13 and 14. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Leading a godly life will bring on some form of persecution. You cannot lead a quiet, private walk with Christ that offends nobody. Just by representing him, just by bearing his name, you remind people of his call to repent from sin. It's gonna make them uncomfortable. So in some form or another, some degree or another, everybody's gonna face some degree of persecution for your Christian walk. It's not actually possible to lead a private life that offends zero people. And then verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Have you heard this line? I don't like going to the church because it's full of hypocrites. Have you heard this? It's even mentioned in scripture. Here's the thing about hypocrisy. It's obviously bad. But even if 100% of all Christians were just fakers, Right? And complete imposters and hypocrites, even if that were the case, even if all Christians were faking it, the truth of Christianity remains intact. Even if there's not a good example of it anywhere, it's still true. So let the hypocrites be hypocrites. Their hypocrisy will do you no good standing in judgment before God. They will not judge you and you won't judge them. They will answer to God for their hypocrisy. You will answer to God if you deny Christ. So let the fakers fake, all right? You, Timothy, be real and raw before God. Let the world be full of imposters if it is. But as for you, 
have integrity, lead a life of holiness with a clear conscience and your integrity intact. Right? But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. Continue in everything that you've learned and you firmly believe. This brings us to the final passage. All scripture is God breathed. I have guys that I'm mentoring and teaching how to preach. Right? And my mentorship of them, and I disciple them in this, teaching them how to preach, it begins with this verse. Right, BR? All scripture is God breathed. Sit across the table from a man who says that God's called him to preach, and I ask him, do you believe that all scripture is God breathed? He says, yes, and there before God witnesses in the diner, right, the cup of coffee and the stale syrup, he's called to account right there. Okay, that means you're gonna teach all scripture, right? Because if you believe it's breathed out by God, you've gotta make a case to justify why you wouldn't teach every book of the Bible. It's written by God, so teach it. It's breathed out by God, so proclaim it. Now here's where that's tricky. John and Philippians are just beautiful all the way through. Amos is not very tweetable. <laughs> but it's just as inspired as John. Amos is just as inspired as Philippians. They're just as inspired. So you have to have a plan to go through all scripture. Highlands Community Church, our plan is to go book by book through the Bible using a curriculum line that I used to write and then manage. And it takes us through every book of the Bible every nine years. I am teaming up with my co-pilots who are our adult small group leaders and our student ministry small group leaders. They teach certain passages. I teach the most offensive ones like every time. <laughs> and then our verse-by-verse -verse Bible reading plan takes everybody at an individual level through the word itself. Now there's an alternative and it really does well, it seems, where you can start off with a, a preconceived thesis and then try to find scripture that backs up your point. Have you seen this? I already know what I want to say. Let me just make the Bible say what I want it to say. Let me, I got to cut out that context because then everybody will know that's not what it was intended to mean. But it'll back up my point and I can borrow the Bible's authority and make my own preconceived statements. Right? That's not the kind of teaching that we do at Highlands. Rather, what we exercise here is considered expository teaching. All scripture is breathed out by God. Where else have you seen this breathed out thing? This is phenomenal. It's the only time this word actually appears in the original Greek, thumonumatos, the breath of God. The breath of God in the very beginning created the universe ex nihilo, out of nothingness. God spoke, let there be light, and it was so. By the breath of God, Adam came to life. By the breath of God, the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 37 rose up. By the breath of God, Jesus breathed upon his disciples, made them apostles, sent them out, and they broke history in half. By the breath of God, and by that same breath of God, Scripture has come to bear upon us. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching. Amen. For reproof. Wait a minute. And for correction. No. Those are less popular, but they're very necessary. Where you hold a preconceived notion or a politically correct or culturally accepted view, and Scripture corrects it, that is a sanctifying moment in your heart. Let scripture correct you because every time it does, it makes you a little bit more like Jesus. Where your preconceived notions come in conflict with the inspired word of God, one of them has to fall. I'll give you a hint, it's not gonna be the word of God. So let scripture correct you where it corrects you. And then the bottom line is what? Equip for every good work. As we as body of Christ, filled with the spirit of God, going through the word of God, book by book, we are equipped for every good 
work. Your knowledge of the Bible should put you to work. Your knowledge of scripture should be manifest through the ministerial fruit that you bear in our community. Because you know the Bible, you just rampantly love the community around you and you bear fruit 30, 60, 100 times what's been sown into you. You're equipped for every good work. That means that for every ministerial need that would crop up in the community around us, there's at least one, if not a team of members of Highlands Community Church who are equipped to meet that need. As we go through all scripture, you're equipped for all imaginable ministerial work. God wrote a book. What a beautiful, blessed life. Look at how ridiculously privileged we are to have the full counsel of God in our hands. If you haven't read it all the way through, read it. God wrote this book. My skeptical friend. Right, you struggle with how it's possible to make truthful statements. You know that murder is wrong, but you don't quite know how. You know that universes don't create themselves, but you think it's kind of a mystery. You know that life doesn't come from non-life, yet here we are. You're searching, just like Socrates was, for the logos, the presupposition upon which intelligibility is even possible. You're not gonna find it in any mystic book. You're not gonna find it in Norse mythology. You're not gonna find it in the writings of the skeptics. You're gonna find it only in this, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. God wrote a book. So if the Spirit of God is drawn upon your heart right now, if you believe this to be true, this is a spiritual moment, not an act of intellectual assent. It's a spiritual transformative moment that's happening right now in your heart. By that same word of God, drawn by the very Spirit of God that breathed Scripture out, that inspired Scripture, would you likewise be filled with that Holy Spirit that draws upon your heart to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you will know, and you will know how you know, because God wrote a book. And you will be equipped for every imaginable good work as a result of studying it. So if the Spirit of God is drawn upon your heart, my skeptical friend, would you pray with me some of these God-inspired, these God-breathed words out to you, God, from the book that he wrote to proclaim your belief in him? If God's drawing upon your heart, would you pray with me now? God, I believe that you breathed out scripture. I believe that you inspired it. I believe the words of John 3.16 were breathed out by God. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life breathed out by God. I believe that Romans 3.23 is breathed out by God that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I confess Romans 6.23 is breathed out by God that the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I believe that is breathed out by God. And finally, I believe Romans 10, 9. I believe it was breathed out by God in the book that you wrote, that if I would confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I would be saved. So right here and now, blow mighty breath of God. By your spirit, convict, convert, and convince. I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it, 
Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Thank you, God, for writing this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with us and worship some of us for the very first time as brand new believers in Jesus Christ?